If you've got a Bible, open with me to Daniel chapter 1 this morning. We're opening a new series entitled Unshakable, looking at the book of Daniel. We're going to be in Daniel for a little while, uh, all summer and then a portion of the fall as well. And so buckle up and join us as we work our way through uh, this Old Testament prophet. We'll start this morning by reading Daniel chapter 1 in verse 1 to verse 7. So if you've got a Bible in front of you, follow along there. If not, it'll be on the screen behind me as we read it together. Daniel chapter 1, beginning in verse 1, we read, In the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. And the Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand, and some of the vessels of the house of God, and he brought them to the land of Shinar, and to the house of his God, and placed the vessels in the treasury of his God. Then the king commanded Ashpenaz, his chief eunuch, to bring some of the people of Israel, both of the royal family and of the nobility, youths without blemish, of good appearance, and skillful in all wisdom, endowed with knowledge, understanding, learning, and competent to stand in the king's palace, and to teach them the literature and language of the Chaldeans. The king assigned them a daily portion of the food that the king ate and of the wine that he drank. They were to be educated for three years. And at the end of that time, they were to stand before the king. Among these were Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah of the tribe of Judah. And the chief of the eunuchs gave them names. Daniel he called Belshazzar. Hananiah he called Shadrach. Mishael he called Meshach. And Azariah he called Abednego. This is God's Word. When our kids were really young, we began reading to them at a very early age. I uh, read to him all kinds of books. And in fact, we read the Jesus Storybook Bible on a nightly basis, right? A story from that Bible every single night. And if you've got young kiddos, I highly commend that Storybook Bible to you. But we read also all other kinds of books as well. And one of the books that my daughter in particular would bring to me, and I'd go tell her to pick out a book and bring it to me so we could read. And she would almost, there was a, you know, the kids go through like phases, like of certain books that they just are drawn to. And one of those books for her at one point was this book, If You Give a Mouse a Cookie. Okay? Now, don't forget the sequels, if you give a moose a muffin and if you give a cat a cupcake. Okay? But if you give a mouse a cookie, it went something like this. In the story, there's a young boy right, who's taken on this kind of journey, uh, this humorous progression by the consequences of each thing that he gives to the mouse. And so the mouse starts off asking for a cookie, and the boy gives the mouse a cookie, but of course, you need a glass of milk to go with the cookie, and so the mouse asks for a glass of milk. The boy gives the mouse a glass of milk, and the mouse drinks the milk, but as a result, right, he needs a straw to drink the milk, and so the boy goes and gets a straw, puts it in the milk for the mouse to drink the milk through the straw, right? After he drinks the glass of milk, he needs a mirror now to see if he's got a milk mustache anywhere, and so he pulls out the mirror, and he's looking in the mirror at himself, and he realizes he needs a haircut, right? His hairs are a little unruly, and so he cuts his hair, Right? After the haircut, he realizes he had made a mess. So now he needs a broom and a dustpan. So the boy goes to get the broom and the dustpan so the mouse can clean up the mess that he has made there on the floor. After the mouse is done cleaning up his mess, he's tired. Like I would be too, right? He needs a nap. And so he goes to take a nap. When he wakes up from his nap, he realizes that he wants to, t- to have a little craft time. And so he asks the boy for some colors and a piece of paper to draw a picture. And so he takes the paper and the, and the colors and he draws the picture. When he's done drawing the picture, he asks the boy if he can hang it on the refrigerator, and so he goes to hang it on the refrigerator. Now, when he goes to hang the picture on the refrigerator, he realizes that inside the refrigerator is the milk. So he asks for a glass of milk, and of course, if you ask for a glass of milk, what do you need to go with it? But a cookie, right? Back to the very beginning, right? It's a very humorous story. But what happens in this story has been happening for the last 100 years in Western culture. And it's been happening today at a faster pace that far surpasses anything imaginable a generation or two ago. See, in these stories, the events that unfold, they develop this kind of humorous tempo, don't they? Right? That demonstrate the compounding effects of one decision. The cookie leads to the milk, the milk to the mirror, the mirror, the haircut, and so on, and so on, and so on. But in each of these stories, ultimately, it circles back to the desire for another cupcake, another muffin, or another cookie. Right Over and over and over again, it comes back to the same place. And it shows that effect of compounding decisions. And listen, culturally, 
Culturally, we're seeing the same compounding effects of our society's collective decisions as they come to bear on human society. In the same way that when the mouse right, sets off this chain of events at the end of which you're back at the beginning with the mouse wanting another cookie, so it is with the constant right, press for moral revolution within Western culture today. Because as soon as a cookie is given, it sets in motion a chain of events which ultimately bring us back to the place where proponents of a moral revolution want another cookie, and then another cookie, and then another cookie, and then another cookie. And it's led us to a place, listen, where proponents of this revolution, they want another piece of legislation that untethers our society even further from the basic facts and principles of reality. That's where we find ourselves today. For instance, I'll give you three examples. Abortion. The legalization of abortion in our nation has untethered us from the reality that there is a human being growing inside the womb of a woman. And to take that life prematurely, to remove that life and untether it from the mother's placenta and take it out of her belly before it is ready to come to term in order to dispose of it is called, biblically called, murder. And yet in a culture... A culture like ours, we would rather, that's unbound by any kind of external authority, what we would call it would be terminating the pregnancy. Or gender. Right? The conversation has gotten so loud around gender within our culture that people who disagree with the historic distinctions that have been in place from the foundation of creation between male and female, God forming both in His image and in His likeness, right, are considered to be barbaric bigots who have nothing but hate in their hearts. We seem to be moving from one discussion to the next about people's gender or now lack thereof. Where they shower, like where they shower, where they relieve themselves, right? Where locker rooms they can go into, and governed by a desire to ensure that everyone's rights are properly considered and protected, lawmakers are scrambling to keep up with increasing demands for statutes to protect and promote the fluidity of the current gender discussion. Or marriage. It's difficult to understate the effects, both short-term and long-term, of the decision in 2015 by the Supreme Court of our nation to legalize same-sex marriage. Right, so the institution of marriage, the bedrock of human society, throughout human history has been redefined. And the new normal is celebrated as an advancement of inclusion right, and basic rights for all people. In fact, we were told when that ruling was passed, that that would not lead to the advocacy for polygamy, and yet now there are voices screaming very loudly in certain corners of our culture that no longer should you just be restricted to marrying one person, but you ought to be able to marry multiple people at the same time and live in a commune together. Do you see the cookie? It continues to come back to the cookie. This cycle seems to be turning along with surprising advances. See, what was once unimaginable morally just a couple of generations ago and throughout most of human history is now enshrined in the town square. It's now codified in the laws of our land. It's taught in schools and celebrated in our media. In fact, there have been certain shows that I've used as illustrations from this pulpit before that now I have to back up and say, I don't know that I can use that again because of things that are being celebrated in the content as it's being created. And all of this, church, can lead us as Christians, those who hold a view of the world that distinguishes creator from creation, that there's a separation between the two, and that all of creation is accountable to and under the authority of the creator to a place where we feel hopeless, where we feel helpless, where we feel vulnerable, where we're pushed to the margins of culture without any influence on public life and any influence on any sort of public policy. And as this cycle marches on, those who hold that life begins at conception, gender is God's design, marriage is between one man and one woman, and on and on and on and on are increasingly being seen as on being on the wrong side of history, bigoted, backwater, behind the times, hateful and oppressive. And yet, this is nothing new. It's nothing new. While the individual headlines have changed, the overarching narrative and theme remains the same throughout history. Throughout history, the people of God have faced pressure to adopt to the 
principles, the perspectives, and the practices of the world and the cultures in which they find themselves to be living. And one of the ways that the Bible presents this, I love, I love this picture throughout the Scriptures, one of the ways it's presented and represented in the Bible is in the contrast between two cities, between Babylon and Jerusalem. Right, if you go all the way back into Genesis, it was on the plains of Shinar in the land of Babylon. Biblical Babylon, that mankind constructed the Tower of Babel, right, in order to exalt itself against and above God Himself, right? That's where they said, we will make a name for ourselves. We will free ourselves from God and His rule in our lives. While it was on Mount Moriah that Abraham offered up Isaac in a total act of trust and obedience to God. Right, Babel would become Babylon, Mount Moriah would become Jerusalem, and the two have been at odds ever since. So that you fast forward into the book of Revelation, and you have two cities once again. In Revelation 16-19, we're told that God remembered Babylon, the great. And it says this about Babylon, He remembered her to make her drain the cup of the wine of the fury of His wrath. In other words, judgment is coming upon Babylon, those who exalt themselves above and against God. But in the couple of chapters following, in Revelation chapter 21, John sees a new Jerusalem coming down out of heaven, a dwelling place for God, a bride who has been adorned and prepared for her husband. A place where God would make His dwelling place with man once again in the city of God, in the new Jerusalem. Babylon is judged. Jerusalem rules and reigns. Over and over again throughout the Scriptures, you see this contrast. Jerusalem and Babylon represent the two cities to which men and women may belong. They symbolize the two loyalties of their hearts. Right? Many different word pictures are used to depict this. There's two gates, there's two ways, there's two masters. And as such, Babylon and Jerusalem are permanently opposed to each other. And listen, every kingdom of this world, every kingdom of this world, when it exalts itself over and above God by giving cookie after cookie, turns into a Babylon. Every kingdom of this world. And so that begs the question this morning, what... What ought the church do in the face of such rapid cultural change and cultural pressure and moral revolution that demands everyone and everything bow to their agenda? And one answer to that question is this, that the church needs to turn to an Old Testament book set in the 6th century B.C. So welcome to the book of Daniel. Right? Right? In 611 B.C., the Assyrian Empire, whose center was in the northern section of modern-day Iraq, was conquered by a a, a force and an empire coming out of the southern section of Iraq, out of Babylon. Uh, The people of Israel had been promised whenever Israel, the northern kingdom, was taken away into captivity by Assyria, right? They were vivid imagery within the Scriptures of hooks in their mouths. That's the Syrians used to do that to lead their captives on a procession of victory and bring them back to their land, right? So the Assyrians were a brutal people. And God had promised that, that He would deliver His people from the Assyrians, but He raises up the Babylonians in order to deliver the Assyrians from the Assyrians and overthrow the Assyrians. And Habakkuk, the prophet in the Old Testament, is like, they're not any better, God. Why would you raise up one evil empire to overthrow another? Are you really delivering us through that? Right? That's, that's basically Habakkuk's message. right? And yet God raises up Babylon to overthrow Assyria. And so Babylon comes into power in the ancient Near East, yet the Israelites who were left in Jerusalem and in Judah, along with the Egyptians further south from them, every time Babylon would turn their backs, right? The Egyptians and the Israelites would rebel. They would revolt. They would rise up in order to try to regain their independence and break free from Babylonian rule. And this led to a series of these punishing expeditions under Nebuchadnezzar II, right? Three successive expeditions where he would come in crushed Jerusalem, and during those expeditions, he would take away captives from Jerusalem and bring them back to Babylon, particularly captives from among the royal family and all of the nobles, because those were the individuals who had the wherewithal and resources to plan, plot, and execute for the revolts. So he brought them back to Babylon. And that particular history is what sets the framework for the story of Daniel. 
Now, the book of Daniel is broadly divided into two sections. The first six chapters contain stories that revolve around Daniel's inner and his friends' interactions with kings of, of Babylon and of Persia subsequently. The last six chapters have these dreams and visions that God gives to Daniel right, about the future. And, but not only that, these chapters are linked together in really significant ways. There's themes and threads that emerge from the book. For instance, chapters 1, 3, and 6 are, are, are linked together around the theme of encouraging faithfulness to God in the midst of pressure and persecution. Chapters 4 and 5 tell us why God's people face that pressure and persecution from the kingdoms of men because they exalt themselves over and against God and His people, and when they do, they become less like human beings and more like human beasts. They become beastly in their orientation. Chapters 2 and 7 encourage us to patient faithfulness in the present by reminding us of our future hope. And then chapters 8 to 12 are a series of visions Daniel receives regarding future tribulation for God's people, but the triumph of God's kingdom. And throughout the book, there's a pattern that emerges and a promise that is given. The pattern is this, that human beings become beasts when they exalt themselves, redefine right and wrong, and refuse to acknowledge God as the true king. But the promise that's conveyed all throughout the book of Daniel over and over is that one day God will confront that beast. There's a day that's coming in which He would rescue the world and His people. He would establish His kingdom and rule and justice and righteousness and holiness forever. That's the book of Daniel in a nutshell, but we start this morning in verses 1 to 7 of chapter 1. And the first thing I want to show you there is this, is that there is pressure to play the game in every age. In every age. Listen, to play the game essentially is, is common vernacular in our day for this whole idea of doing things in the accepted way or in the approved way or in the way that will curry favor for you in the way that will help you advance in your job or rise in status within society. So you play the game, right? right? So that, in other words, there are certain ways of doing things in every line of work that everyone is expected to adopt in order to get things done. Right? There's certain what, there are ways of certain ways of doing things within every culture that give you status or give you a platform or give you some sort of security within this world. And so you play the game in order to get those. You adopt perspectives, you adopt practices, you adopt principles, and you play the game. And for Daniel and his three friends in Babylon, they would be pressured to play the game. They were pressured to find their most meaningful, significant relationships with Babylonians. They were pressured to think like Babylonians. They were pressured to enjoy all the perks of Babylon. They were pressured to find their identity in Babylon as well. And listen, in our day and time, the most intense pressure within our culture, seems to be rising and coming from the secular humanists. Now, some of you are like, man, that's a big term. What does that mean? Here's what that means. A secular humanist is someone who adopts a view of the world in which humanity is capable of morality, self-fulfillment, meaning, and purpose apart from God. In other words, we don't need a deity above us telling us what desires we ought to fulfill and what desires we ought to resist. Right? So we cut ourselves loose from God. The attitude of the secular humanist is captured beautifully in Psalm chapter 2, in verse 3, where the psalmist speaks of the kings of the earth who are raging against God and His anointed. And this is what they say as they rage against them. Let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. In other words, let us untether ourselves from their rule and from their way of doing things. Now, I've never spent, I, 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 even, though, even though I grew up 30 minutes from the Gulf, I didn't spend a, any, really any time on the ocean as a child, but I spent a lot of time on lakes. Right? And there's a couple of things that those two bodies of water have in common is that on lakes you might find marinas that have docks, and on oceans or in gulfs you're going to find ports that have docks. Okay? So they both have docks. And oftentimes, some of those floating docks, right? if you go up to Lake Texoma, what you're going to find is they've got these massive cables right? that are big steel cables that are running from the dock into the floor of the lake. Right? And it's holding that dock secure. It's keeping it in place. Right? But if those cables were to be snapped, if you were to untether those docks from those cables... Right? If you were to loose it from its moorings, 
what ultimately happens, like Texoma is a pretty big lake, and it gets some nice swells on it. I've been caught in some of those before, okay? It's not enjoyable, right? And so as those swells begin to rise and that wave action begins to, to crash against those docks, it's going to do one of two things. It's either going to crash it against the rocks or it's going to, wave action is going to slowly pull it further and further and further and further out into the lake. Now imagine a dock on the ocean that was moored to the bottom and fixed to the land. If those cables were to be snapped and the wave action were to pull it further and further and further out into the sea, listen, it's no longer near the shore where things are peaceful. But it's now out in the middle of the billows and the waves that are crashing around it. And listen, church, the view of human flourishing in the mind of the secular humanist is like a dock that is torn free from its moorings, from its fixed reality, right? And as if some of you guys remember the old hymn, Love Lifted Me, okay? Love Lifted Me, When Nothing Else Could Help, Love Lifted Me. That hymn starts this way, speaking of an individual's experience, but I believe it can be applied to our culture and society as well. It says this, I was sinking deep in sin, far from the peaceful shore, very deeply stained within, sinking to rise no more. In other words, the waves were crashing over me, pulling me under. And listen, that's what secular humanists the end of that worldview will result in a society that's drifting on the open sea with waves crashing over it, ultimately to destroy and dissolve reality. That is the end of secular humanism. And in this cultural context, listen, Christians are pressured to play the game to adopt certain perspectives, principles, and practices that are celebrated within our society, but are divorced from ultimate reality. Divorced from ultimate reality. But how does this pressure get exerted? In the same way that it was exerted in Daniel chapter 1. Let me show you four strategies this morning of what I'm going to call four strategies of secularization. They're here in Daniel chapter 1, and the first one is this, is isolation from godly influences. Isolation from godly influences. In verses 3 and 4, we read that the king commands his servant to do what? To bring these youths, probably teenagers at the time, to bring these teenagers, cut them out, separate them from their families, from their community, from their practices, from their customs, from the public worship of God, from the fellowship with God's people, and to bring them into his palace to isolate them from the rest of the covenant community. In other words, what the king does here is like a predator that seeks to cut his prey off from the rest of the pack. Have you ever seen a, a, a predator hunting animals? Right? What do they do? They go after the one that's straggling behind a little bit. They cut them off from the rest of the pack. They isolate them in order to devour them. And that's what the king does here. He isolates these teens away from their larger covenant community. See, in Babylon, they were separated from the public worship of God, from the teaching of God's Word, from fellowship and the wisdom of the people of God, and from the daily illustration of what it meant to be a faithful Israelite, of what it meant to be a faithful worshiper of Yahweh. And so separated, listen, Sinclair Ferguson says it this way, he says, separated from the furnace of godliness, the king anticipated that the last dying embers of true faithfulness to the Lord would die out. You've heard me use this illustration before, but when you take a log out of a raging fire and you set it to the side, eventually, what happens to that log? The heat and the light that it was emanating begin to slowly dissipate until it is gone. And it's a, the strategy of isolation. Cutting people, we'll talk more about that here in a minute, but cutting people away from godly influences. Second of all, worldview shaping instruction. In verse 4, the king's servants commanded to teach the literature and language of the Chaldeans. In other words, they were to receive a Babylonian education. And we're told in verse 5, this was to go on for three years. So the king was playing a long game here. Okay, right? He wasn't by force saying you're going to adopt these views. It was slowly but surely, like the frog in the pot, right? That you start when the water is room temperature and you slowly turn the heat up right, and that eventually that frog boils and doesn't even realize that it's boiling. Now, this education they received is not like us learning Spanish. 
okay, or learning French, or learning German. It's also not like reading the great works of Russian literature or English literature, right? That's not what we're talking about here. What we're talking about here in this particular education that they were to receive was an attempt to train these four Hebrew teens to think like Babylonians. They wanted them to think like Babylonians. They wanted them to process life like Babylonians. They wanted them to see the world through the lenses of Babylon. It was an aim to reshape their worldview in the image of this foreign nation. It wasn't just merely an academic exercise, but a spiritual one. They wanted them to see through new lenses. They wanted them to look at life differently. All right? Because that's what a worldview is. It's simply the way in which we view the world. The way in which we process what we're taking in around us. The way in which we make decisions. I've often said, right, even from this pulpit, if given the choice between preaching sermons that aim at changing the way people act or preaching sermons that, changing the, that aim at changing the way people think, I will choose the latter every single time because the way that we think always, always, always reshapes the way that we act. Right? So if you can, if you can change the way that a person thinks, inevitably that's going to flow downstream in their life into the way that they live. So this worldview-shaping instruction, third, the deceitfulness of riches or indulgence. In verse 5, we're told the king carved out portions of his daily table fare for these Jewish teens. They were given a daily provision of the king's delicacies and the wine which he himself drank. Okay? So they're eating like three forks every night, you know? Right, they're, they're going to the finest like, seafood houses, the finest steak houses, right? uh, the best barbecue joints on the face of the earth. That's what they're eating, the finest table fare you can imagine in those days. That's what they're being served. Now, there's some debate as to why, in verse 8, Daniel refuses to eat that food. Right? There are some who say, well, it was food that was offered to idols, but that would have included the vegetables that Daniel does agree to eat as well. Right? All of that food would have come to the king's table. So perhaps what Daniel rightly perceives in this portion, right, his allotment of this food from the king's table is this, that it was an effort to seduce him into the lifestyle of Babylon through the enjoyment of pleasures he had never known before. Never known before. Sinclair Ferguson again said it this way, he said, high living very easily masters the senses and blunts the sharp-edged commitment of young Christians. The good life that Daniel was offered was intended by the king to wean him away from the hard life to which God had called him. It would encourage him to focus on himself and on a life of luxury and enjoyment. It would lead him to think of himself no longer as a servant of God, but as a distinguished servant of Nebuchadnezzar. He says there's an echo here of the wilderness temptations of our Lord. No mention is made of Daniel being confronted with the apologetic for Babylonian theology or with intellectual arguments against the Old Testament faith. The attack was far more subtle than that and therefore more lethal. Somebody, this is profound, somebody in Nebuchadnezzar's palace knew enough about the human heart to see that most men have their price and that good times, comfort, self-esteem, and a position in society are usually a sufficient bid for the soul. Fourth, the reshaping of their identity. In verse 7, the chief of the eunuchs renames Daniel and his three friends. He calls Daniel Belshazzar, Hananiah, Shadrach, Mishael, Meshach, and Azariah, Abednego. We probably know those last three names most, most uh, uh, frequently from uh, the story we'll get to in Daniel chapter 3 in the fiery furnace. And while we can't always be certain about what Hebrew names and what Babylonian names meant, one thing is abundantly clear is that in the Hebrew names, there was a consistent reference to the word for God, El, right? But in the Babylonian names that they are given, there's a consistent reference to these Babylonian deities, Baal and Nebu, right? So they take their names, which were intended to remind them of who God is, Yahweh is, their Hebrew names, and they're changed into names, right, that reflect the Babylonian gods, in order to try to reshape their identity, their understanding of who they were. They didn't belong to the God of heaven, but they belonged to the gods of the king. 
And as they heard those names called day after day, it was an additional temptation for them to think more and more like a Babylonian. Do you see that? Reshaping their identity, restructuring and constructing for them a Babylonian worldview. Right? Giving them indulgences and the high luxury of living and cutting them off from the rest of the covenant community. In those ways, Nebuchadnezzar said, I'm going to make these four young men into loyal subjects. Listen, those same strategies have been employed in every culture, in every generation, and continue to be so today. So how do we combat them? I'm going to give you two things this morning. How do we combat them? The first one is this. As Christians, we must learn to sing the Lord's song in a foreign land. Peter tells us in 1 Peter, right, that we are exiles, that we are strangers, that we're sojourners, right? A sojourner is someone who's passing through. In other words, if we were to bring that imagery up into modern day vernacular, we would say that we're living on this earth with a green card, okay? That we have a, a permanent residence here, but our citizenship is elsewhere, right? Paul will say it this way in Philippians chapter 3, that our citizenship is in heaven from where we await one who will come, speaking of Jesus, So we live in a foreign land as Christians, regardless of how much we may love the nation that God has providentially placed us in, it is still a foreign land. We are still exiles. And the degree to which the church remembers that reality is the degree to which she will have an effective witness in the world. By singing the Lord's song in a foreign land. Psalm 137 was written during the Babylonian exile, and it reads as follows. In Psalm 137, we read, By the waters of Babylon, there we sat down and wept when we remembered Zion. On the willows there we hung up our lyres, for there our captors required of us songs and our tormentors mirth, saying, Sing us one of the songs of Zion. How shall we sing the Lord's song in a foreign land? The psalmist says, if I forget you, O Jerusalem, let my right hand forget its skill. Let my tongue stick to the roof of my mouth if I do not remember you, if I do not set Jerusalem above my highest joy. Don't you see what the psalmist is saying? He's saying this. That's, that's a vivid image, right? Tongue through top of your mouth, right? So you can't talk, you can't speak, you can't sing. What the psalmist is saying is this. May I not be able to sing at all all if I do not sing of Jerusalem. May I not be able to sing at all if I do not sing of Zion. May I not be able to sing at all unless I sing of the dwelling of the Most High God. May I not be able to utter a word unless it is spoken about the glory and majesty of Yahweh. That's what the psalmist is saying. May my tongue stick to the top of my mouth if I'm not singing of Jerusalem. If it's not my highest joy and delight in the midst of exile. That my highest joy and delight would not be power in this foreign land, but my highest joy and delight would be the praise of my God and Savior, my Redeemer and Deliverer, my King who rules over all and whose kingdom is unshakable. May that be my delight. May that be my joy. See, songs, they they do one of two things oftentimes. They either express delight and joy or they express sorrow and heartache, don't they? Right? And oftentimes, many songs, there's not a whole lot of room in between, right? They're either the pinnacle of joy and celebration or they're in the depths of heartache and despair. Just listen to country music, right? And so in country music, they you know, sing about their dog dying and you know, their girl running off and their truck getting keyed and right, all these kinds of things that are happening, right? So heartache, 
right? But then you also sing about, right, um, you know, your baby and, right, being a parent and the joys of parenthood and, right, you know, you're going to miss this stuff whenever you get older, so delight in those joys now, right? So you've got joys and you've got sorrows. You've got heartache and you've got jubilation. And listen, to sing the Lord's song in a foreign land, we as a church must learn to do both. We ought to praise the majesty of God, the might of God, the power of God, the wisdom of God, the authority of God, the mercy of God, the grace of God, and we rejoice in it and celebrate. But we also, we also sing with hearts that ache for the realities of sin in this world, how it has eaten away at human dignity, how it has eroded our capacity for love of our brothers, how it has destroyed societies and brought them to ashes. We ought to sing with hearts that are heavy and full at the same time because we're living in exile waiting for a promised kingdom. It's okay if I'm by myself this morning, all right? That's where we find ourselves, this land in between. And so some of our songs reflect us longing for something that we have not yet taken hold of or tasted in its fullness. While some of them reflect, right, the appetizers that we have received and rejoicing in them. Sing the Lord's song in a foreign land. But the only way we're able to do that, church, listen, is if we entrust our days to the Lord of history. That's the only way we're able to do that. See, there's two basic ways to view human history. You can view it atheistically or you can view it theistically. In other words, atheistically as if there is no God Everything is just by random chance, right? Or as some of our forefathers said, right, there is a God, but He created everything. Step back and just kind of let it all figure itself out. Or you can view it like deistically, or you can view it theistically, which means that there is a God who's created everything and He's still actively involved carrying human history to His intended and ordained purposes and ends. How do you think the author of Daniel sees history? Look back at verses 1 and 2 in the book. We're told that while Babylon besieged Jerusalem, it was ultimately the Lord who gave Jehoiakim into the hand of Nebuchadnezzar. Right? Nebuchadnezzar comes against Jerusalem. He sets up fortifications. He brings in catapults, right? He marches on the city with all of his might and power. But even all the military might and power of Babylon coming against a besieged Jerusalem would not have overtaken and overthrown the city unless the Lord gave Jerusalem and gave Jehoiakim into the hand of Nebuchadnezzar. See, the author of Daniel wants us to see that the reason that these four young men find themselves exiled from their home, cut off from their people, being indoctrinated and educated with a Babylonian worldview, having their identity questioned. They find themselves in this place, not by happenstance or circumstance, but by God's providence. That God has been orchestrating everything that has taken place up to this point. And the truth is, church, He will continue to orchestrate everything until all of His ends and purposes are drawn to a conclusion. So Daniel and Hananiah and Mishael and Azariah, they find themselves in a pagan land under a pagan king, under pagan pressure, in accordance with God's providence because God is faithful to keep his word even when it costs him and even when it costs his people you know that if you go I won't read you all the verses because we don't have time this morning but I'll give them to you so you can look them up in Deuteronomy chapters 28 and 29 God 
through Moses delivering a sermon there, right before the people go into the land of promise, reminds them that because of His covenant with them, that God, whenever they obeyed Him, He would bless them, that their nation would flourish, that they would have security within their borders, but whenever they rebelled against Him, what would happen? He would raise up other nations to come and discipline and judge them to overthrow them, and they would be captives and they would be slaves. So ultimately, what you have in Deuteronomy chapter 28 is playing itself out in the nation of Israel in Daniel chapter 1. And here's why. Because in 2 Chronicles chapter 36, you see that Jehoiakim was 25 years old when he began to reign. And he reigned 11 years in Jerusalem. And then the text says this, He did what was evil in the sight of the Lord his God. So against him came Nebuchadnezzar. Right? Amen. Amen. Right? So that's what's going on. That's why Israel finds itself here. Right? Isaiah even says to Hezekiah, one of the kings of Israel, hear the word of the Lord of hosts. Behold, the days are coming when all that is in your house and all that your fathers have stored up to this day shall be carried to where? Babylon. Because Israel was evil inside the Lord and God kept His Word. He was faithful to His Word even when it cost Him and His people. You say, how could it cost God? Listen. Listen. In the ancient Near East, the fortunes of a God and His people were viewed together. So, consider this for a second. When Nebuchadnezzar comes in, overthrows Jerusalem, overthrows the city, takes captives away, and takes from the treasury of the temple... And where does the text say in verse 2 that he brought all those articles that he took out of the treasury of the temple? He brought them to the house of what? His own God. In the same way that whenever the Philistines defeated Israel in 2 Samuel and took the ark and brought it into the temple of Dagon and set it at Dagon's feet. Here's the image. Nobody needed to interpret that, right? What was being communicated was this, that Dagon is more powerful than Yahweh because Dagon has given the Philistines victory over Israel. And yet the next day, whenever the Philistines wake up, they come into the temple and Dagon is face first before the ark, broken and shattered into pieces. To communicate what? Yahweh is supreme. There is none before whom He bows and everyone bows before Him. And so despite the loss of reputation in the ancient world, God said, I'm going to be faithful to my word. Even when it costs me and even when it costs my people. You see this over and over and over again. And again, the greatest moment in which you see it in human history is at the cross. That God would be faithful to keep His covenant. The covenant He made with Abraham. To say, Abraham, right? Abraham, if... If be it done unto me, he says, this is what's going on in Genesis chapter 15. Be it done unto me, Abraham. May I be cut into pieces if I ever, if I ever fail to uphold my end of the covenant. And Abraham, be it done unto me if you fail to uphold yours too. And that's what you have at the cross. God himself in the person of Jesus Christ being cut into pieces, being torn in two so that sinful men and women like you and I could have a relationship with God. See, at the cross, what appeared to be a defeat, what appeared to be the greatest loss in human history, ultimately winds up to be the greatest victory over Satan, sin, and death. That's the good news of the Gospel. That what appears to, when everything appears to be lost, God is still in control. He is still Lord over human history. So entrust your days to Him, church. Entrust your days to Him. Entrust your days to Him by prioritizing biblical community rather than being isolated from it. See, there is a perspective within this world that wants us to believe, particularly within the Babylon of America, that wants us to believe that we need not prioritize the Lord's day and to be with God's people and under God's word in worship. 
Right, there's that perspective circulating. I can, I can worship Jesus at the lake. I can worship Jesus on the mountains. I can worship Jesus on my sofa. Right? Can you? Yes, of course you can. But you cannot obey Hebrews chapter 10, verse 25. Do not forsake the assembling of yourself together at the mountain or at the lake or on your sofa. That happens when God's people gather under God's word as God is worshipped in a covenant community called the church. And for those who abandon that, listen, they are on the first step toward secularization. So prioritize biblical community. Build a biblical worldview. See, the antidote to that world-shaping instruction is, and that education is transformation. That's why Paul says in Romans chapter 12, do not be what? Conformed to the patterns of this world, the ways of thinking in this world. See, when my kids were little, we used to have a bunch of Play-Doh around the house. We don't have that anymore. Praise Jesus, right? And so there's Play-Doh everywhere, ground into all the carpet, Okay? Right? And they had these little molds that if you pushed down on top of the Play-Doh, it would make it into a, a person or a hat or a car or whatever. And that's exactly what the world aims to do to people, to press its mold down on them, to form them and shape them in its likeness. But Paul says, don't be conformed, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind. And the way that happens most is through God's Word through meditation, through memorization, through reflection, through hearing the Word of God, through reading the Word of God, through studying the Word of God, through hiding God's Word in our hearts. It begins to reshape the way that we think so we're not being pressed into the mold of the world, but we're being changed into the image of Christ. Right? We entrust our days to the Lord of history. Third, by considering the reproach of Christ greater. Listen to, what, listen to what the author of Hebrews says in Hebrews chapter 11, verses 24 to 26. By faith Moses, when he was grown up, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter. Right? In other words, I'm going to refuse to be identified and find all the perks and privileges of living as royalty in Egypt. He says, choosing rather to be mistreated with the people of God than to enjoy the fleeting pressures of sin, he considered the reproach of Christ greater wealth than the treasures of Egypt, for he was looking to What? The reward. Right? In an, in an indulgent culture that seeks to lull us to sleep with luxury and fine things, that if we're going to resist secularization, then we have to learn to consider the reproach of Christ greater. Looking forward to the reward that what's coming one day is better than anything anybody can give me today. And then fourth, you got to see yourself as an image bearer and a loved child. Babylonians have to reshape their identity. And listen, there are two things that we as Christians, to avoid a secularization of our principles, practices, and perspectives, we must do. We've got to learn and to hold on to this reality that we are created, formed, and fashioned in God's image and in His likeness. So we're accountable to Him and His authority. But not only is that true, but we are also, if we are in Christ, we are an adopted son or daughter of God. We are His beloved child. We are brought into His family. We are cared for. He has spread His wings over us to cover us under the shadow of His wings with His mercy and grace. And that there's, as Matt said last week, there is, no, there, is, there is nothing that you can do to make God love you more. Nothing that you can do to make God love you less. He loves you as He loves you right now. If you're in Christ, that is your identity you don't have to look deep inside somewhere to find and discover who you are and then live that out you look up and you say this is who God has made me as a man or woman formed in his image and he gave his son for me because he loves me and so my rightful response is a life of worship honor and obedience Entrust your days to the Lord of history, church. He's in control of it all. Control of it all. Prioritize biblical community. Don't give up. Don't check out. But as often, as often, not, not when it's convenient, but as often as you can, 
be with God's people, in God's word, worship of God. Prioritize biblical community. Build a biblical worldview. Consider the reproach of Christ greater. And see yourself as an image bearer and a loved, beloved child of God. Because there will be pressure in every age. The strategies don't change, only the headlines. We live in a day when our culture keeps wanting cookies, right? And as Christians, we keep singing and we keep waiting, knowing the Lord has all of history in His hands. Let's pray together. Father, this morning, give us the trust and faith that we need as Your people to believe that You are sovereign over all. Even when kingdoms of this world, rulers of our nations, become Nebuchadnezzars and seek to pull the moorings of reality loose. Father, as Christians, may you help us to continue to sing your song here in this land of exile. May we sing about the heartaches. We would sing about the joys that lie before us. And that we would know because of the cross, because of the work of Jesus, that even when it looks like all is lost, you are still at work. And that one day you will overthrow every kingdom because yours will outlast all others. And that our Lord, King Jesus, will return. Not only to be seated upon the throne of heaven, but upon the throne of this earth as the kingdoms of this world become the kingdom of our Lord and His Christ. And He shall reign forever and ever. God, we look for that day and celebrate it with joy even as we grieve in the present in this land of exile. But help us to entrust our days to You in faithfulness to be with your people, to understand our identity that's been given to us, not that we found for ourselves. To hold fast to truth and to have our minds shaped by it and build a way of seeing the world that is consistent with ultimate reality and your revelation in Scriptures. And to resist to resist the materialistic pull of our hearts 